910 Ministries podcast, No Trash, Just Truth, with hosts Chris Paxson and Rose Spiller. Welcome back. We're glad you're joining us today as we dive into some real truth about false teaching. And like we said, when we announced this series, some of the false teaching we're going to cover has to do with exposing cults that claim Christianity. Rose, I don't know if you've noticed what seems to be a recent trend online in social groups, but it seems that there are a few cults that almost seem to be trolling to find members. And I know that sounds harsh. It could be that they truly believe that their religion is Christian, but when they're corrected, it's not taken very well, usually. No, it's definitely not. And that's one of the hallmarks of something or someone not being Christian. For instance, there's a lot of posts by Christian women looking for a new church. Someone will ask for church recommendations in an area that they're moving to. And they get a lot of answers from a lot of different people. And invariably, if you scroll through, you'll find someone recommending a church where something about what they say doesn't quite sound Christian. Something seems a little off. Or they'll recommend their church and then post a link to it And if you're unaware, you might not realize that the link is actually to a cult, not a Christian church or a Christian denomination. Yeah, that's what happened to me a few months ago when I was commenting on one of those posts of how to find a church. I saw another post with a link that said, find a church near you, come unto Christ. And underneath it, it said, churchofjesuschrist.org. So If someone didn't know any better, they could easily hit that link and end up in something totally other than a Christian church. So what did I do? Well, I commented under that link that this is a link to Mormon or Latter-day Saints churches, which are not Christian. I mean, it was a Christian group on Facebook after all. So they're either trolling to get members or they're genuinely deceived themselves. And that's very possible today. And the girl that posted the link responded to me that LDS was Christian and that she was Christian. And maybe, like I said, she really thinks that she is because she replied back and forth a few more times with me. And in the end, I asked a few specific questions about her beliefs about the Trinity and about Jesus, which she couldn't answer. And the last comment on the on her post or on her line of um, replies and stuff with the bad link was the originator of the whole post. And she was thanking me for pointing it out. I I think you're right. I think most Mormons say they're Christians. I've seen Mormons, you know, on TV or I've known them, had some come to my door not too long ago and they believed they were Christian. Mm -hmm. Mormons, LDS, as they're called for Latter-day Saints, used to claim their own religion. But more and more, they're associating themselves with Christianity and, like we said, even claiming to be Christians. Mormonism isn't even really called Mormonism much anymore. It's more known as Latter-day Saints, like we said, LDS. Most of their churches, you'll see, they're called the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which is headquartered in Salt Lake City, Utah, and has more than 16 million members worldwide. There's another Mormon denomination called Community of Christ, and that's centered in Independence, Missouri, and has about 250,000 members. And there's even a number of smaller denominations within it. Yeah. So let's dive in with some background on Mormonism. We know that 
there was controversy about doctrine and theology in the Christian churches back in the 1800s, much like there is today. One example of that, one example of someone fighting against liberalism in the church back then was Charles Spurgeon. And we've mentioned his downgrade theory that came out like 50 years after Mormonism got started. Spurgeon got it right. Amongst all this upheaval in the church, Spurgeon got it right. But sadly, Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism, did not get it right. Mormonism got started in Fayette, New York, when a farmer named Joseph Smith was seeing all this upheaval in and between denominations, and he was trying to decide which church denomination he should join. Joseph Smith was also into Freemasonry, and that's another subject that we're going to talk about later in this series, and it claims also that his practices are Christian, but they aren't. But Joseph Smith claims that after praying about which Christian denomination to join, he was visited by, and, and these are the words he uses, God the Father and his son, small s, not, not capital S like we would use for Jesus, God the Father and his son, small s, Jesus Christ. They told him not to join any denomination because they were all wrong. And according to Smith's dream or what he said was a dream, God the Father and Jesus the small s, son of God, gave him the fix to that. <laughs> Smith claimed that an angel or angels told him about an ancient Hebrew text carved on gold plates that had been lost for 1,500 years, which were buried in a nearby hill. You know, Chris, I'm already thinking 1,500 years, so that, that would be 300, so the dating's already way after the New Testament. But anyway, this lost text supposedly told of Israelites who lived in America in ancient times. The claim is that around 600 BC, some Israelites left Jerusalem and sailed for America. And supposedly, they knew about Christ and had a belief in him hundreds of years before Jesus ever walked on earth. These American Israelites supposedly claim a personal visitation by Jesus after his resurrection. They're referred to as the lost sheep that Jesus talked about in John chapter 17. The Mormon teaching says that these American Israelites were Christians, but they had wars over beliefs, and there was a lot of apostasy. The translations of the Golden Tablets into the Book of Mormon supposedly corrected all the bad teaching. To them, the Book of Mormon was the true teaching that God intended his people to live by. Right. And over the next six years, Joseph Smith dictated an English translation of this supposed text to his wife and some other people. He also claimed that these gold tablets were taken back with an angel after they finished the translation. How convenient. <laughs> how convenient. And the dictation... Like Congress losing videos. Anyway. <laughs> I, yeah, I know. I know. It's crazy, right? So this dictation was published in 1830 and it was called the Book of Mormon. In that same year, he started the Mormon church and he called it at first the Church of Christ, which later became known of Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And he set up churches in Ohio and Missouri and Illinois, and he got a lot of converts. So about this book, we need to mention that one of his dictation takers lost 116 pages of the book before it was published, never to be seen again. And remember, the angel swooped away with them. So these pages were said to be the book of Lehi. 
So instead of retranslating it, Smith did an abridged version of translating it from some other golden tablet, according to him. That should give you pause. Number one, that God would let his sacred word be lost forever, <laughs> never to be found again. <clears throat> and then he goes, oh, yeah, just give me an abridged version. They'll be yeah. fine with that. Oh, look, so, another tablet. Isn't that convenient? <laughs> like I said, I think you know, Congress is taking cues from them. It's like Jesus. It's, it's like it's like Jesus said. Oh yeah, you know, just use that message or the the passion translation. Yeah. It doesn't matter. It should give you pause because, like you said, Rose, that does not sound like something that God would do. And Rose, the fact that there even was this book fails the first of those five tests that we mentioned last week in Tim Challey's article, the five tests of false doctrine. And remember that. Solid biblical teaching must pass all five tests to be true. They'll just one, and it's not biblical truth. That's right. You know, it makes me think of John MacArthur. He said, if God was going to give new prophecy, do you think he'd give it to someone with bad theology? <laughs> or someone that doesn't even read their Bible? Yeah. Or someone that loses sacred tablets. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we digress. Anyway, there was another man, Brigham Young who is the guy that the university is named after, like Joseph Smith, also became disillusioned with the Christian church. He and his wife belonged to a Methodist congregation and eventually, after moving to New York, joined a group of people that were religious seekers. They studied and searched the Bible, apparently. Eventually, his disillusionment and his introduction to the Mormon religion led him to believe Mormonism over and above all the teachings of the Bible. So that probably tells you how much they searched and studied their Bible. Yeah, well, one of the main things that they practiced was polygamy. And that's something that Orthodox Christianity says is sin. So right there is another red flag that this is not Christian. Some of them, you might remember the show Sister Wives, still do. They are the fundamental LDS church. So most of them don't practice that today. But back then they did. And the polygamy angered Christians. And in June of 1844, Joseph Smith and his brother were killed by an angry mob in Illinois because of it. Two years later, Brigham Young, Joseph Smith's successor, led a group of Mormons away and they went westward from Illinois because they were being persecuted for their unorthodox beliefs. He actually led them along the Western wagon trails looking for a place where they could have freedom to live and worship however they wanted without interference. And they ended up in Salt Lake City, Utah, and started making preparations for tens of thousands to follow them there. And tens of thousands did follow them there. Young and 148 other Mormons crossed into the Great Salt Lake Valley on July 24th, 1847. By 1896, when Utah was granted statehood, the church had more than 250,000 members, mostly living in Utah. Polygamy continued to be a problem for Mormons. It divided the Mormon church into those who practiced it and those who didn't. It got them into trouble with the U.S. government, who was trying to make it illegal, and eventually they attacked the issue by disincorporating the church and seizing its assets, something that caused the Mormon president then Wilford Woodruff, to officially end the practice because he was afraid it would lead to the destruction of all the Mormon temples. So eventually, 
The church officially threatened polygamists with excommunication, which is why the FLDS split from them. And the government returned the church property, pardoned the polygamists, and admitted the state of Utah to the union. The moral of the story, money talks. Yeah, they, they caved to the government in order to keep their property. True Christians stand firm on something that their doctrine says that was God-ordained. That shows the crack in its claim of Christianity. It's another crack. Now that we have some background on the religion, and before we get to their beliefs, let's talk about the process of becoming or following Mormonism. Obviously, some people are born into the Mormon families and raised in the religion, but that's not always how it happens. You're right, Chris. Not, not all of them are born into it. Outsiders usually are engaged in conversation with Mormon missionaries who show up at their door in pairs of two. Usually, and probably all of us have seen them, they're very clean-cut young people. They can be adult couples. I'll admit I've never seen a couple. I always I haven't see either. two men. Right. And these men and women have been through one of at least 15 missionary training centers throughout the world. The largest, no surprise, is in Provo, Utah, near Brigham Young University, and it accommodates like 4,000 missionaries in training. For 12 weeks, 16 hours a day, they get instruction in languages, theology, conversational tactics. They're taught how to dress, how to conduct themselves. They're told about tithing and et cetera. They're also convinced how sinful they are and that they must confess and be forgiven. And the unmarried missionaries, which most of them are, are given a 24-7 companion of the same sex that's with them. Even in the bathroom. Talk about awkward. Yep. Talk about performance anxiety. <laughs> yep. I know. And it's to make sure that they keep on the straight and narrow so not to let Satan win. Then they're sent on the mission fields all over the world. During their mission time, which usually lasts roughly about two years, they provide progress numbers to their leaders. How many people they talk to, how many they baptize, how many books of Mormon are distributed, etc. When they return, they're often encouraged to find a job, get married, whatever. And not all Mormons have to be missionaries. You don't have to go through that training and be a missionary. And there are exclusions that keep you from being a missionary, actually. But you don't have to, to be part of the Mormon church. Those that are part of the whole missionary thing, they would have already gone through the first four temple rituals of becoming a Mormon, something that all Mormons must do to join the church. So, Chris, let's look at those. Supposedly, they are secret. Members are never supposed to speak of them because they're sacred. And I know if you're not a Mormon, you are not allowed in a Mormon temple for that reason. But in reality, the only ones that are really kept secret are the signs and tokens, as they call them, which are really handshakes and passwords. There's a link between these Mormonism and Freemasonry rituals. So we're going to talk about these words and handshakes in another episode when we do Freemasonry. But there's a lot of weird ideas people have about what they do in these rituals. Everything from sex to playing basketball naked after being rubbed with oil, which really doesn't sound like much fun to do or watch. <laughs> I don't know how somebody came up with that as a possible idea. I don't either. I don't either. Well, I don't get the basketball thing at all. No. So, Chris, what do they really do in these rituals? All right. 
Well, basically there are five rituals. Sometimes they're called ordinances or covenants. And Mormons believe you have to participate in all these to achieve the highest level of salvation in heaven, which they call exaltation. So the five ordinances are baptism, confirmation, receiving the Melchizedek priesthood, something that's waived for women because they're not going to be given the priesthood. In number four is initiary or endowment. And number five is sealing. So first you're baptized. Special emphasis is placed on faith and repentance because God forgives your sins. When you're baptized into Mormonism, you promise to keep all of God's commandments. And this is a biggie because Mormons believe that you have to keep them. If you slip up, all of your prior sin comes back on your head. Colossians 2, 13 to 14 teaches us that when we're saved, God's forgiven all of our trespasses. And Psalm 103.12 and Isaiah 43.25 are just some other verses that back this up. That's right. I can't imagine living like that. No, it's really sad. Gosh. It's very sad. So you can imagine the pressure they're under. So just kind of keep that in mind when we get to like witnessing. But the next thing, the next step, number two, is confirmation, which is part of baptism. And confirmation is that you receive the gift of the Holy Ghost when you're baptized. Mormons don't believe in the Trinitarian God of Orthodox Christianity. Their Holy Ghost sounds similar to Christian doctrine, but it's not. In fact, they teach that the Holy Ghost can be overpowered by us through our anger or other sin. We believe the Holy Spirit is God and man could never overpower God. So that's just another crack that is showing this is not Christian. The next step in the indoctrination is the Melchizedek priesthood. And that is for men only, like I said, and it's them promising to fulfill callings in the church. And in return for a man taking this Melchizedek priesthood and promising to fulfill his callings, he is promised all that the father has shall be given unto him. And I'm quoting their literature here. His wife also receives those blessings. Now, Rose, when we taught Ephesians 1, did we see that the blessings that God gives us, we had to earn in some way? Yes, we did. We did? No, of course we did, because it's not there. God graciously gives them to us. So the fourth step is the initiary and endowment. And that's where special emphasis is placed on the laws of chastity, sacrifice, and the law of consecration, a promise to dedicate your life and material substance to the church. And in return, you get special underwear. Yep, you do. You get a new name and you get signs and tokens. That's the handshakes and passwords we were talking about. And that's what you need to get into heaven. So Chris, in contrast, when we as Protestants join our local church, we promise to uphold the work of the church by serving and even monetarily giving to the church to the extent that we can. But have you ever done that in order to earn anything? Have you ever gotten free underwear? I've never gotten free underwear from the church. And if I did, I'd be a little freaked out. <laughs> and we're not trying to make light of this. I mean, it's, it's serious stuff. We don't have to earn our way to anything. We That's don't have right. to earn any of the gifts that we get from God. You know, Jesus has already earned that for us in our place. And Jesus tells us 
to come without money because you can't buy absolutely what he's giving absolutely so all of these first four steps must be completed by all mormons to join the church and before we get to the fifth step which is sealing let's go through a mormon's ritualistic journey that gets them to this point when you're initiated you present yourself wearing the temple garments also known as that mormon underwear under a modest shapeless white dress and you're washed by someone saying a prayer for you then dipping their thumb in water and wiping it across your forehead you're blessed by this person to and i'm quoting here become clean from the blood and sins of this generation that's the end of the quote in the blessing and the prayer that he goes on to give you all of the different parts of your body are mentioned for some sort of blessing then your mormon underwear are pronounced authorized you're instructed to wear them day and night and to respect them by not dropping your underwear on the floor or letting other people see it the underwear is white and consists of a short sleeve kind of lightweight t-shirt style top and the bottom half is like shorts or short capris they come in different materials so you can have options for your climate and everything but your authorized underwear is said to protect you from harm although it's not stated whether that means physical or spiritual harm and basically it's really a lot there to remind you to stay pure and obviously your husband or wife is going to see this if you're in it day and night well do you have more than one set yes okay that's good yeah from everything i was i studied i saw that you know, you had to buy them. You can't, you can't just find them anywhere in the mall. Okay. You have special stores you have to buy them from. So after that part of the ceremony is over, you go to a small movie theater-like place where the men sit on the right and the women sit on the left. What you're wearing when you go to this movie theater ceremony are white slippers, white socks, white pants, a white dress shirt, a bonnet for the men, a veil for the woman. And over top of all of this is a white robe with a green apron and a white sash that's around your waist. The white clothing symbolizes purity from sin. The apron represents the fig leaves that Adam and Eve wore after they had eaten the forbidden fruit. Right, and you watch this movie and then you participate in a ritual that involves moving your robe from one shoulder to another, making some hand gestures, accepting covenants, and then you practice handshakes and passwords in something called the veil ceremony. and then. You get to enter the presence of God, they say, by going into what they call the celestial room, and that's a place of quiet and prayer. Then once all of this is done, the fifth step, the final step, is sealing. Sealing is a marriage ceremony, joining husband and wife and their children for eternity. They believe that God promises that you and your spouse will still be married after the resurrection and that your children can be with you in heaven. And we're going to refute this in a bit. That's right. And like, obviously, probably not everybody gets married, but there's a really strong emphasis placed on it. And I think you'll see why as we go through more of this. But those are the five ordinances. And all of these temple ordinances that were mentioned, they're all rites of passage. Like you said, Rose, people aren't, not just anybody's allowed to go into their temple. And I think they're starting to relax that a little bit. I didn't know that. In fact, I think my cousin went. I, oh. I didn't see the whole post, but yeah, I think they're loosening up a little bit. But still, I'm sure there's parts that you're not allowed to. And so 
let's ask a question. Have any of these rituals changed over the years? Yeah, they have. They're, what they consist of has changed. There's been some things that have been completely removed from the ceremony. One of that was an oath that they used to take called the Oath of Vengeance. And that was an oath that they took that they would pray and never cease praying to God to avenge the blood of Joseph Smith, who they consider a martyr. Remember, he was beaten for polygamy. They actually have a hymn that was called Praise to the Man, capital M. And that's not Jesus. That's Joseph Smith that they're singing about. But as Christians know, our praises are to be to God, not to any man. And the ceremony used to contain a ritual where you stood behind a curtain with somebody who was a higher up on the other side of the curtain. And there was a slit where you could reach through to each other. You would put ankle to ankle, knee to knee, chest to chest, hand to their shoulder and mouth to their ear. And that's where you'd practice the handshakes and passwords. And then you got to pass through the veil to the celestial room. They've done away with all that. And I'm sure there's a lot of people who are relieved they've done away with that. <laughs> I'm sure there are. And they used to have a little play that was enacted with someone standing in as a Protestant minister who was employed by Satan to teach Adam false doctrine. This Protestant minister would teach some commonly held beliefs of Christian denominations. And then in the play, Adam rejects him, saying that he's looking for the messengers from the father to come down to teach them. And they eventually removed that little play because it felt that they were comparing other churches and doctrines and them being with Satan as disrespectful. They started looking at that as being something disrespectful they shouldn't do. Okay. And go figure, now they want to call themselves Christians. So it kind of makes sense that that would go away. Yeah. <laughs> there was also something they removed in 1990 called the penalties. So after learning the handshake or the password in this previous ritual, the person would agree to keep the secret. And what they would do is they would symbolically slit their throat, tear their tongue out, or slash their bowels open. Symbolically, not literally. There are some that believe that these are still somewhat symbolic examples of those penalties in the rituals today, just not ones that are quite so graphic. So they're symbolically doing something to say they'll keep the secret. Kind of right. like stick a needle in your eye. Yeah, kind of like that. Women also used to promise, and remember, we're talking about things that they had in their original doctrine from Joseph Smith that they've now done away with. Uh, one of those was women also used to promise to obey the law of their husbands. Today, these wives covenant to hearken unto the counsel of their husbands as they hearken unto the father. And one huge change in doctrine was that Blacks were never allowed to be in the priesthood until 1978, but now they are. And there's another change. There used to be nudity in the initiatory ceremony. Originally, what happened was people bathed in water and oil, and then the person saying the prayer would touch the body part that was mentioned in the prayer. Like I said, all these body parts are mentioned in the prayer, blessings on, you know, your breasts and your womb and all that kind of stuff. And eventually that changed the person wearing a light garment as a shield to preserve their modesty while the workers still touch their body. And that shield, if you look at the pictures, is pretty scant, but they wore that eventually, and now they're fully covered, and therefore they only have their foreheads swiped with water. You know, Chris, 
this is a huge red flag. And I just find it so ironic that there's so much about modesty that you have to have someone in the bathroom with you and wear this special underwear. Yet that whole thing with the curtain, with the slit touching your body parts and what you just described is anything but modest. It isn't. It's not at all. Now, supposedly this ceremony was revealed to Joseph Smith by God himself. The Mormon text states that. So these are all really major changes to their ceremony. They've changed their doctrine many times throughout history. So you have to ask yourself, if God had actually instituted these things, like that ceremony you described, the slit in the curtain and stuff, then what would have constituted them updating and revising it so drastically? God doesn't change. No, he doesn't. And the answer is caving into pressures from the outside world. The very thing they say corrupted the church and why God gave Joseph Smith the translation of the golden tablets. So they're doing the same things. We're really giving them a hard time, but sadly, some of our Protestant denominations are doing the same thing, not in the same blatant way, but they're taking the original teachings of God and they're changing it. So I guess we can't be that judgmental. No, and all of it falls under the heading of what we're talking about. Is this Christian? I mean, there's Christian denominations that really aren't Christian anymore. And they have started out, even if they didn't have totally correct doctrine and theology, still believe the basics. I mean, there are denominations that are getting rid of the basics that you have to believe. And that's why we're doing this series. Exactly. So are Mormons Christians? In our introduction, we talked about the fact that to be a Christian, you must submit to the word of God. Second John 1 verse 9 says that everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Well, Mormonism fails that test. We know that already just from the fact that they've added to scripture big time. They have added to scripture. A whole book. (laughs) Yeah, a whole book. So let's look at more of their beliefs. Well, first, Mormons claim that there are many gods and that man can become a god. The LDS Church actually teaches that God the Father was a man. And I don't even like saying that. No. They take Matthew 5.48. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And they twist it saying that God and man are the same species, but are at different points of progression. They're claiming that God the Father is actually a glorified man. Mormonism teaches that men can become gods by performing certain rituals and deeds. When they say Father wants us to become like him, they mean become a god. Here's a quote from LDS President Lorenzo Snow. As man now is, God once was. As God now is, man may be. What do you got to say about that? That is horrible and blasphemous. The Bible teaches that there is only one God, according to 1 Timothy 2, 5, which says, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Not only that, Numbers 23, 19 starts out saying, God is not a man. And Isaiah 43, 10 says, before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. Isaiah 44, 6, 44, 8, 
42.8. All those back it up and there are more. Yeah, there's a lot more. And we're created beings, as we all know from Genesis. God, on the other hand, is eternal. He was never born. He never died. Psalm 92 says, before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus wasn't teaching that a finite being was going to become a God. In context, we're to become like God in his attributes. We're to resemble Jesus. We're to show love to the unjust, just like God does. We're to practice righteousness. There are examples that Jesus gives us in the context of this verse that they pull out to say, man can become God. Mormons don't recognize that God has incommunicable attributes that he doesn't share with us. For instance, his holiness, his immutability. We're not holy. We're changeable. God is holy. God is not changeable. He is immutable. Absolutely. Absolutely. So another belief of Mormons is that we have heavenly parents, and that's with an S. Yeah, not just the heavenly parent, parents. They talk of God, the Father, and Heavenly Mother, capital mm. H, capital H, capital M, Heavenly Mother. So to understand this, you have to think how they think in their basic concept, that the world is like a cycle. It's happened before and hope, hopefully will happen again. Like it's an ongoing process of beings who have spirit children that are tested and then exalted, and then they have more spirit children and so on and so on. Mormons believe that we all pre-existed with the Father before we were born on earth. We existed as these spirit beings, and then we were given bodies. Mm. The Bible teaches us that man did not have life until after God created the earth in Genesis. After he created the earth, he formed Adam, and he breathed life into him. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 46 and 47, that the physical came first, then the spiritual came second. He does this in comparing Adam to Jesus. So we know that we don't pre-exist with God. This idea of there being a heavenly mother is blasphemous. And I have to tell you, it makes me almost physically ill that they're even talking about this. This heavenly mother thing was brought up at the Mormons April 2022 conference by President Dallin Oaks president of the LDS. And here's what he said. We have heavenly parents, a father and a mother. The doctrine of heavenly mother comes by revelation and is a distinct belief by Latter-day Saints. Our theology began with heavenly parents. Our highest goal is to be like them. Very little has been revealed about mother in heaven, but what we do know is found in a gospel topic known as the Gospel Library Application. Once you've read what's there, you'll know everything I know about the subject. I wish I knew more. So Chris, is the LDS becoming another woke church besides blasphemous? Well, yeah, I was just gonna say something about that. This idea of Heavenly Mother is becoming more and more popular in LDS belief, according to some people. It fits into their whole temple marriage narrative. It used to be something too sacred for the general population to talk about. 
But the idea of praying to Heavenly Mother is also becoming popular. But at that conference, it was reiterated that they are only to pray to God the Father in the name of Jesus, not for the same reasons that we pray in the name of Jesus. This new movement in LDS is kind of got, it's, it's got a feminist take to it in a way. They're saying that the older belief of keeping Heavenly Mother quiet and like not talking about it did a disservice to Heavenly Mother. The younger women really seem to have a feeling that their teaching in the past, at least, was somewhat patriarchal. That's kind of what they're, some of the things they're dealing with. So what does the Bible teach about heavenly parents, plural? Biblically, Christians do not believe in a heavenly mother. If it were true, then there would be more than one God because she would be a goddess. Like we said, this is blasphemous teaching. And it really does give me physical symptoms to even read it. Isaiah 44, 8 says, fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. That's the end of scripture. So God affirms that he is God alone over and over again in scripture. The book of Isaiah alone says it over and over again, let alone in all the other places, Old and New Testament. Absolutely. And another question is, are we all God's spirit children? Well, no. First John 4, 9 says that God sent his only son into the world, meaning Jesus. Jesus taught, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. And that's John 8, 23. We are adopted children of God. Ephesians 1, 5 says, God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. And those are just some of the examples. Again, there are more than we could ever quote here to refute all this stuff. Part of the problem is that Mormons don't believe Jesus is God. They believe he is God's spirit son. But John 1 says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Colossians 1, 15 to 17, Hebrews 1, 3, and a slew of other verses, again, too many to mention, tell us that Jesus is God's only son and that he is God. He's not, a, he's not God's spirit son like we all are supposed to be. And if you think that's blasphemous, hold on to your hat, because Mormonism teaches that Satan is also God's spirit son and the spirit brother of Jesus. Now, we know Satan is a created being. Jesus is not. Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14 describe Satan's fall from heaven. Satan is a fallen angel, and he can't do anything without God's permission, as we see in Job 1. Chris, there's so many things we could say to refute this whole idea of God having spirit children who are brothers and sisters of Jesus and Satan. Obviously, there is nothing in the Bible that teaches any of this. In fact, John 1.18 says, No one has seen God but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is at the Father's side. He has made him known. And we could cite many other verses. But obviously, yep. we hope you all realize this is just blasphemy and heresy. Yeah. So, Chris, what else do Mormons teach? 
Mormonism teaches that belief in Jesus is not enough to have eternal life. They never have assurance of salvation. And like I said before, this is really sad. It is is very, very sad. So they've got to keep this whole list of works. They've got to attend church, do marriages for the dead, something else that we don't see in scripture. They've got to do baptisms for the dead, something else we don't see in scripture. They have to pray daily, keep commandments, be confirmed members of the LDS church, receive the temple endowment, receive the priesthood, keep the law. They are taught that they must do all these things, including tithing, because sin results in withdrawal of the Holy Ghost. Now, the Holy Spirit never leaves us. No, he doesn't. Their book of doctrine and covenants, one verse 31 says, and I'm quoting here, that the Lord cannot look upon sin with the least degree of allowance. And that's the end of the quote. Their book called Nephi says sin, and I'm quoting here, makes the one who sins unable to dwell in the presence of heavenly father for no unclean thing can dwell with God. And that's the end of that quote. But the Bible teaches in John 3, 6, that whoever believes in the son has eternal life. And in John 17, Jesus himself tells us that none of those who are saved will be lost. And it says that many, many times, as we've said over and over today, in many, many places. Yeah, and they take a truth that God can't be around sin. You can't be in God's presence when you're sinful. And then wrap it up in lies, because as we know, Jesus took care of that for us. There's so many things that sound similar. Yeah. I think they do. They take the truth and wrap it in lies. And it makes it easy to deceive people. It makes it easier to deceive people. Mormons will also look at their purpose in life through a different lens. The Bible teaches us that our purpose in life is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Our focus, at least it should be, is on God. And again, there are many Christians and Christian churches that get this wrong. But Mormons, on the other hand, look forward to heaven for a different reason. Family. Jeffrey Holland, an LDS apostle, even said it would not be heaven if his wife and children were not there. That's misplaced devotion to your family. It's actually making an idol out of your family. So what does the Bible say about family that has to do with heaven? Well, we know that when the Pharisees tried to trip Jesus up, they said to him, there was a woman whose husband died, so she remarried and he died, and she ended up with seven husbands, and then she died. And they said, who is she married to in the resurrection? And he said, you're in error because you don't know scripture. There is no marriage in heaven. So Jesus makes it pretty clear about that. Doesn't get much clearer than that. No, it doesn't. There's no guarantee in scripture that your family is going to be with you in heaven. There isn't. And if you need them to be happy, you know, then you're going against the teachings of scripture, which we've seen Mormonism do over and over and over again. And we should desire our family's salvation but they can't become an idol to us. Like you said, Rose, God comes first. The psalmist in Psalm 73, 25 says, who have I in heaven, but you, there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. And he's talking about God. He desires God. Being with your family forever is one of the heavy hitters that Mormon missionaries use to coax others into the religion. Sadly, they use that a lot. But like I said, the Bible does not give us a guarantee that our family will be there with us. 
when I was witnessing to my brother who has since died, he kept saying to me, can you guarantee me that we'll all be together in heaven? And I kept saying, no, I can't. And, and that really upset him that I couldn't give him a guarantee that we could all be together in heaven. Right. But we can't. But Look, that's what they're promising. And we all would like that to be the case. Mormons believe that the priesthood conferred on the apostles by Jesus were lost on earth sometime shortly after they died. The time between then and Joseph Smith being given the tablets to translate is called the great apostasy. Then God reestablished that priesthood on Joseph Smith in the 1800s. But the Bible actually warns against believing there was a great apostasy. To believe that the church became so apostate that God had to do something different goes against scripture. Yeah. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus teaches that his kingdom, while being small, would begin to grow large. And then it would grow large. Luke 13, 18 to 19 says, What is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? It is like a mustard seed, which a man took and threw into his own garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air nested in its branches. Jesus promises that he will build his church, and that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So saying it became so apostate that God decided to ditch it and give Joseph Smith some golden tablets, it's, it's heresy. And it's no wonder that they don't have assurance of salvation and think they have to earn it because they don't see God as very powerful. No. He can't even protect and grow his church. No. Back to what you said, Chris, about what they believe about heaven and hell. Mormons believe that at the end of history, people will be divided into one of four resting places. The highest is the celestial kingdom, and it's compared to the glory of the sun. That's the reward for those who lived a life faithfully devoted to the teachings of the LDS Church. For children who died before reaching the age of accountability, and for those who died without having knowledge of the Mormon gospel. And the celestial kingdom is divided into three tiers. The highest level is reserved for those who have attained the greatest levels of godliness and those who have been married and sealed in the Mormon temple. The next level is called the terrestrial kingdom, and it's compared to the glory of the moon, and it's reserved for those who died rejecting Jesus, but while they were in spirit prison, they received a testimony of him. And this level kingdom is also for those who died without the law and those who were not valiant in their testimony of Jesus. Spirit prison supposedly is some state of the soul between death and resurrection. And like purgatory, it is completely subjective. Yeah. So the third tier is the telestial kingdom, not terrestrial, telestial. And that's compared to the stars and is the eternal resting place for those who lie and who love lies. It's the home of adulterers, sorcerers, those who rejected the Mormon prophets and did not receive testimony, even while in spirit prison. And then there's a fourth place that they believe in for those who once had a testimony and then they rejected the teachings of the LDS church. They're going to be sent to outer darkness with Satan. Rose, all of these teachings about life after death go against the teaching of the Bible, where it says in the end that there are two places, heaven and hell. In Matthew 25 and other places, Jesus makes it clear that there are two 
sets of people, sheep and goats, saved and unsaved. There are two groups of people and two places they end up. And it's very objective. You don't have to wonder if you're in one of the groups. God makes it crystal clear. There's no subjection here that it's someone else's opinion. Right. These are only some of the differences between Mormonism and Christianity. Mormons put a lot of trust in their modern day prophets along with the text. They believe that there are prophets of God who receive revelation and inspiration to guide the church as a whole. What they're taught to believe can always change, and it has changed several times throughout history, as we've shown. But Malachi 3.6 says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Hebrews 13.8, Numbers 23.19, Psalm 33.11, and so many other places say that God does not change. And we can be extremely, extremely thankful for that. Yes. You know, we may see more changes for the Mormons in the near future. They're still building temples. They've changed in the past to accept liberal agendas to save their buildings. They no longer call same-sex marriage apostasy, but they used to. You know, will one of their prophets someday soon get the word to incorporate even more liberal agendas into their beliefs? it's quite possible that they'll have to in order to survive. Well, if their past is any indication, if money is involved, you never Mm -hmm. know. Yeah. There's a lot of well-known Mormons today. Mitt Romney, Glenn Beck, Donnie and Marie Osmond, the whole Osmond family. Two of the band members of Imagine Dragons were raised Mormon, although lead vocalist Dan Reynolds has backed away somewhat. But there's many, many popular people. Julianne Howe of Dancing with the Stars, Christina Aguilera, Catherine Heigl, and others were raised Mormon, but they've left the church. And a large portion of those who leave Mormonism become atheists. And that's really, really sad. Mm -hmm. But you can see kind of being raised under this, all of this heavy weight of of keeping the law and and just other things that, I don't know, those beliefs are so strange. Yeah, I just... I don't know. I think that's probably why they do become atheists. Mormons, Latter-day Saints, use a lot of biblical-sounding terminology. They they can sound sort of Christian. They can sound like Christian if they only tell you certain, certain things. And they're widely known for their morality. They're known for looking really good on the outside. And they're nice people. You know, yes, their people are nice. They're upstanding citizens. They, they're clean cut. They, they just look good and moral. These people take their wholesome living from biblical type things. So you can see why they could be perceived as Christian, but they don't have the Holy Spirit living inside of them. They're living these exemplary looking lives without the power of the Holy Spirit, that the power that only comes from God, the true God. They're mimicking in some ways what God's people should look like, mm-hmm. but they're counterfeit and they're lost and they need the gospel. Yeah, they do. We gave you a lot of examples of ways Mormonism and Christianity do not line up, but it's a lot to remember when you run into a Mormon and you want to witness or counter their beliefs. So how do you counter a Mormon's teaching when they're telling you that they're Christians? Go to the basics. First, Mormonism teaches that Christ is not God incarnate. But we know 
That Colossians 2.9, for example, says, for in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. In other words, Jesus Christ is God incarnate, God in human form. Then you can take them to John 1.1, Titus 2.13, Romans 9.5, as well as many other verses that clearly show Jesus is God. Yeah. Another thing to witness with is that Mormonism teaches that Christ's death was not sufficient payment for sin. But 1 Peter 3.18 says that Christ died for our sins once for all. 1 John 2.2, Hebrews 10.12, and many other verses back this up. And Mormons believe that our salvation is not by grace alone, that good works are also essential for our salvation. But the Bible teaches something different. Galatians 2.16 says, and we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And verses like Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, Romans 3, 28, and many, many, many others teach the same thing. And one more thing. Mormonism is taught from a book that's added to the Bible, the Book of Mormon. But even that is not their final word on their doctrine and theology because their prophets can get new revelation. If you go to Deuteronomy 4, 2, Proverbs 30, 5 to 6, Revelation 22, 18 and 19, for example. Those verses and others tell us not to add to or subtract from the word of God. These people are in desperate need of the gospel. We hope that everything we've talked about today helps you if you do get the chance to talk to some Mormons knocking at your door or in other places. And that's a good place to end today. Have a blessed day, everybody. 